Now, as we come again to Romans, the ninth chapter, let me first of all remind you that I made the comment that certainly as we approach the Word of God, we need to be reverent. But we certainly, certainly need a reverent heart when we read the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, which is filled with the sovereignty of God, the inability of man, salvation completely and utterly by grace and grace alone, election and the teaching on reprobation. And so we come again to it this evening, and I would remind you that in those first five verses, however we are to understand these great truths of God's sovereignty and how they relate to salvation, it did not, it did not hinder the Apostle Paul from, from longing for the conversion of his kinsmen according to the flesh. Now what I'd like to do tonight is to read the entire chapter again, and in this sermon and perhaps another, I'm thinking about it. I'd like to survey some of the theological themes that we find in the chapter before perhaps looking at some of the, uh, the nitty-gritty of some of Paul's concerns in, uh, in the chapter. And uh, quite frankly, the approach that I'm taking tonight very briefly is an approach that I took 20 years ago and decided to take it again this evening. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, before we read this portion of your word, do give to us reverent minds and reverent hearts. And help us to bow with utter and complete docility under your word. That is to say, we would believe your word, obey your word, not question your word. We would understand your word, and we would recognize that you are the Lord, not us. And so help us to, help us to trample our own autonomy underfoot, and to acknowledge upon our knees, at least within our hearts, that you are the sovereign God. And Father, may your people be strengthened by, by what we pray will be a, a careful handling of these teachings in Romans 9, but also, Heavenly Father, how we are reminded that so often you have used the great truth of the sovereignty of God to bring lost sinners to the end of themselves so that they may, by your grace, flee from wrath to grace. We pray for that kind of transition in someone's life tonight, a transition from wrath to grace by faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's read the entire chapter again, the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. This is the word of God. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, thus far the sermon last week, we pick it up here this week. But it is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, 
had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there will they be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And what I think we should do is to survey together the theme of the sovereignty of God in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, as I say tonight and perhaps another as well before looking a little more systematically at some of the issues that we find here. A supreme reason for emphasizing God's sovereignty is that it puts us in our place. Frankly, we need to understand that we are creatures and that God is the creator. We need to understand that we are finite and that God is infinite. And we also need to understand that we are fallen and that he only can redeem us. So first, as creatures, we are brought low. As sinners saved by grace, we are lifted to the dizzying heights of privileges in Christ through his gospel. 
Romans 9 then displays mountain peaks of God's sovereignty to us, breathtaking vistas. And so I would ask you this evening to climb the text, to put on your mountain climbing gear, your, uh, your, uh, your pickaxe and your rope and the cleats on your shoes, and let's see this ninth chapter of the book of Romans as presenting to us these mountain peaks. And let's attempt to climb Everest tonight. So, first of all, will you pickaxe into this truth that God is absolutely sovereign? Now, remember in verse 5, we saw last week, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And here we have an assertion of the deity of Jesus Christ, who is called God, but not only God, but God over all which is ascribing to him absolute sovereignty. God is sovereign in all things, and Romans 9 stresses his sovereignty in his redemptive purpose, his plan to save his own. His will is sovereign. God's will is a sovereign will. It's an amazing thing to me that even in evangelical churches, we want to make man's will sovereign in this great matter of salvation and God's will subordinate to man's. But the ninth chapter of the book of Romans and all of the Bible teaches the opposite. It is God's will that is sovereign. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It's not our wills, but God's that is sovereign. God is over all, according to verse 5. God is independent. He answers to no one. And that's the emphasis of verses 19 through 21. Shall we read again? You shall say to me then, why does he yet find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? God is completely independent. The old theologians used to use the word aseity, meaning that he is self-contained. He owes He owes no explanation to us. He is in his sovereign mercy answering to no one. And this is just to confess the isness of God, if I may coin a phrase, that God is God. Perhaps upon our lips often should be that statement God is God. And this is the thoroughgoing teaching of Holy Scripture. Just to give you a few scripture passages, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatsoever pleases him. Isaiah 14, verse 24, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. Isaiah 46, verse 10 I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. And so the Apostle Paul, in order to emphasize the independence of God, the aseity of God, that he is self-contained, in order to emphasize that, he uses the potter image. Of course, you can find that in Jeremiah and in other places, but the potter image essentially reminds us that 
God is the one who molds according to his own sovereign will, and he molds his people for our salvation. Now, though referring to salvation, I think there are four applications that are very, very helpful to us as we think of God as the one who molds his people. And God is the one who is sovereign in all things, the potter having the right as a potter does over the clay. And the first of those four implications is this. We proud sinners need to hear that we are clay. I'm not the potter. God is. I'm the clay on the wheel. We need to hear in order that we be brought down into the dust of humiliation that God is the potter and that we are the clay. Cornelius Van Til said somewhere, actually it's in his Christian um, theory of knowledge, sinners hate the idea of a clearly identifiable authority over them. They do not want to meet God. They would gladly make themselves believe that there is no clearly discernible, identifiable revelation of their creator and judge anywhere to be found in the universe. That's very true. And as Van Til often said, you can only deny him by presupposing him. That is to say, you can only deny him because he holds you in his lap. Dr. Van Til was on a train at one point, and he noticed a father with a child. The father was holding the child in his lap, and the child reached up and slapped her father. But Van Til said the only way the child could reach up and slap her father was because the father was holding her in his lap. Now that's the point. You can only deny him by presupposing him. You can only deny him because he holds you in his lap. Our very breath, our next breath, our present breath is in his sovereign hands. He could take it away instantaneously. We're clay. So in verse 16 we read, so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Not on him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but on God that showeth mercy. The old authorized version says, this is said in relation to those who simply say, I will not submit. And that's all of us by nature. We do not want to submit to God. But I think a second implication of this is that it's a tremendous encouragement for believers in Jesus in the midst of tragedy and suffering. Is our suffering by chance or by purpose? Well, it's by purpose. Because we can't see what God is doing, we respond sometimes in frustration and anger. We've been working through the book of Job on Wednesday nights in our Vespers services. And certainly we see this in that book. We act as if God owes us. We can act that way. And God says to us, he's no man's debtor. Can we love such a God who indeed does purpose the hardships that come into our lives? Who as sovereign over the devil even permitted the devil to do what he did to Job for his own glorious purposes beyond our comprehension. Can we love such a God? And the answer to that is yes. He's proven himself an infinitely loving father in the cross. What more do we want than the cross? To prove God's love to us. What more do we want than 
the Son of God, sent by the love of the Father to come into the world and to assume human nature and to bear God's wrath in our place so that we might be freed from that wrath and so that we might know God. Can't you trust a God like this who sent his own son even in the midst of trouble that you can't understand and trials that are beyond you? And so we come to the end of the book of Job, you know, there in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. You know those wonderful words. Turn to them, Job 42, 1 through 6. We have a long way before we get there in Vespers. But Job answered the Lord and said, Job 42... I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." And it's at that point, as he is in dust and ashes, that he understands what he should understand and all that he can understand about the sovereignty of God and the trouble that he has endured. And what does he understand? God essentially says, Job, you don't understand, but I understand. And it should be enough for you that I understand. Trust me. Look to me. You don't have to know. It is enough that I know. Calvin puts it this way, gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things, patience in adversity, and also incredible freedom from worry about the future all necessarily follow upon this knowledge. And then a third implication of this is that, believer, he is for you in his sovereignty. After all, he is molding you, according to this text, to be a vessel of grace. He's not molding you to be a vessel of wrath. He is molding you according to his own gracious purpose, that you might know him and that you might be a vessel of grace. So that back here in chapter 8, verse 31 and following, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't your God all-sufficient? Doesn't He declare that His sovereignty is for you and not against you? That every attribute of God is for you and not against you? 
His infinity is for you. His eternality is for you. His goodness is for you. His justice is for you. Every attribute of God is for you and not against you. In His sovereignty, He is forming you to be a vessel of grace. It's incredible. And when our burdens are great, we are to remember that He is El Shaddai. And then also another implication of what is taught here in Romans 9 is simply a correction to our view of God. Because all of us, every one of us, has a wrong view of God by nature. Because of original sin, we are born into this world with a corrupt mind and a corrupt heart, corrupt will, corrupt affections. And the view of God that we have by nature is wrong. That view has to be corrected by the Holy Scriptures and the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit so that our hearts begin to understand who God is as He has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture. And so when men try to restrict God and to deny His sovereignty, we should respond the way that Martin Luther responded in his book Bondage of the Will when he was writing against Erasmus. Luther said, Your thoughts of God are too human. Now, that's good. Your thoughts of God are too human. And so today there is the so-called openness of God viewpoint, which denies that God is above time, and does not control all things, says that God has no exhaustive knowledge of future events, makes mistakes, is dependent upon His world, preached in some evangelical pulpits. And it pulls the rug right from under the preaching and casts us all into chaos and dark night, and it is sheer unbelief. And the only answer to that is the sovereign God revealed to us on the pages of Holy Scripture and especially in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. So, we have pickaxed into the truth of God's absolute sovereignty, and let's climb a bit more into this great mountain peak. Secondly, cast your cleats into the truth that the sovereign God is just. The sovereign God is just. Is God just? Well, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so declared throughout this chapter is that God is a just God. Whether we understand it, whether we see it, whether we comprehend it in the midst of circumstances is beside the point. This is simply who He is. It's true. God is just. So is God unjust in loving Jacob and hating Esau? And the answer to the question is no. God cannot deny Himself. He is always consistent with His nature And in verse 22, which we just read, some are vessels that display God's mercy, and others are vessels that display God's wrath, but God's wrath in Holy Scripture is never capricious. Never. His wrath is always against sin. 
And so God is irresistible, and He is irresistibly, unavoidably, powerfully, penetratingly, constantly, and eternally just. A fact that should, a fact I think that should strike terror in the hearts of those who persist in rebellion against God, because judgment is written in every heart, every heart. Judgment is written in all of our hearts. Eternity is written on our hearts. And as we really contemplate who God is, contrary to all of the jokes and the awful things that people say about God and what is written about Him in the media, our God is just. He is absolutely just. And it should produce fear in the hearts of unbelievers. But it also should produce reverence and a kind of reverent joy in the heart of every believer. For as I see the injustices of the world and the rebellion that is against God and the injustices that are perpetrated against the people of God, surely with Paul we long for the conversion of those who are involved in the perpetration of those injustices, but we also long for the day in which God's grace will be shown to have been grace indeed, and God's justice also will be completely exhausted against those who have denied him and who have committed injustices in this world. You know, in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul immediately speaks of God's wrath in verse 18. I mean, to say that it was something right on his mind from the start. When he said in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so sinners suppress the truth, and according to Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is presently being revealed. And he goes on to say in the next chapters that sinners store up wrath for the day of wrath when that wrath will be shown in a far, far more full way than sometimes it is shown in this world. But when he speaks of the wrath of God, and he does so ten times in the book of Romans, he also would have us to understand, as he moves along in his explanation of things, as we have seen on our Sunday evening expositions, that ultimately for the believer, this points to the necessity of the cross, doesn't it? God is just. I am unjust. How am I going to be forgiven by a just God? And the culminating answer to that is in the third chapter of Romans, verses 21 and following. If you'll turn there, when Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. You see that? The righteousness, the the justice of God, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the great issue, how can God be just and also justify me? How can he accept me as righteous when I am unrighteous? The answer is by declaring me righteous through the work of his son that I receive by faith. I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying somewhere, I probably just remember it from student days, God is a righteous God and Savior, not a righteous God but a Savior. I'll leave you to contemplate that. God never sets aside his righteousness to save. Never has he set aside his righteousness. And that theme of righteousness and justice is clearly, clearly expounded in the book of Romans and in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. So that to use those great words of William Cunningham, when we are justified, when we are accepted, it's on the basis of justice. Justice that has been met on the cross, and Cunningham put it this way, that we, as we are justified, that it is the righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require, that we are granted by faith. So you must put your cleats into the truth of the sovereignty of God and his justice as we climb this mountain of Romans 9. But then thirdly, now grab hold of this truth, that God is gracious and merciful. So in verses 25 through 29, there's that emphasis, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Now imagine that, those who were not even his people, he will call my people, and her that was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So citing passages from Hosea and Isaiah, Paul's point is that salvation is not based on national pedigree. It is not based on racial connections. It is altogether by grace. It is altogether of his sovereign mercy. Justification is not based on the law, that is to say, our keeping of the law, but by Christ meeting the requirements of the law when he shed his blood on the cross. So in verses 30 through 33, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel would pursue a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Parenthetically, by the way, those of you who read some of the New Perspective people who say to us that the uh, Jews were not concerned with salvation by works flies right in the face of what's said here. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
And so God is gracious. God is merciful. And has called us Gentiles who now believe in Him, His people, when we were once not His people. God is not, God is not obligated to save anyone. That is to say, when he obligates himself and commits himself. But I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is nothing within us that obligates God to save us. Suppose a governor sets free one out of ten on death row. So you have a governor, and he says, I'm going to set this one free. For his own purposes, he's concluded to do that. May the others say that's not fair? Well, they can say it, but it's not true because they still deserve to be on death row. But there's more. For God's people, justice has been satisfied in the cross, not only Is it sovereign mercy if he says, I choose to save that one and not that one? It's not capricious. It's according to his own sovereign will, his own determination, which is in his own mind. But that one who is not chosen cannot say, God is not just because God contemplates us in our sin. But for God's people, justice has been satisfied in the cross. This, this mercy of God that is extolled in Romans the ninth chapter is sufficient for the vilest sinner, whoever that sinner may be. The wrath of God was poured out upon the Son of God and His sacrifice is totally sufficient for sinners. And so I call you by faith to lay hold of God's mercy in Christ. Calvin says the proper object of faith is the goodness of God by which sinners are forgiven. All right, let's climb a little more. Is it getting hard? Is the atmosphere thinning out? Well, now let's throw, throw the rope around this, this truth that God is all-powerful. Again in verses 22 and 23, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy he has prepared beforehand for glory, that's power. And look at verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, proud Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So a ruler wants to execute justice, show mercy, but he lacks power. He would like to do it, but he can't. That's not God. He lacks no power to exercise his sovereign will. Now sometimes we're faced with what is called the problem of evil. You might recall that Scott Oliphant came and spoke to us one evening about these things. If God is all-powerful, then he must not be good. If he is all-good, he must not be powerful. 
Because as we perceive things, we cannot see the goodness of God in this circumstance or that. All of which denies the creator-creature distinction. God has the sovereign right to do what He will. The power to execute His will is under His own authority. And He is under no obligation to satisfy our questions. God is God. He is good. He is just. He is merciful, he is powerful, but he also is inscrutable. You cannot know his mind. We are called to confess that God is sovereign. We are not called to confess confess how it all hangs together. Only God knows that. And so we bow before Scripture alone. Because Scripture alone is the criterion of truth. And so I would urge you not to buy into some unbelieving problematic that says that if God is all-powerful, He must not be good. If He's good, He must not be all-powerful, which denies the creator-creature distinction. In our children's catechism, we have the question, can God do all things? And the answer is, God can do all His holy will. The operative word there is holy. The will that He performs is always holy. And he can even save a rebel like me. That's power. If he can save my soul, that's power. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven: I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Not if he can save me. Fifthly, let's continue to climb. Pull on the ledge now. And begin to understand as you take a little break that God does all this for his own glory. Election, reprobation, his sovereign will is all for his own glory. And so we read in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I've told you before, in the Old Testament, that word glory is kavod. It tends to mean heavy, something that is heavy, something that is weighty. In the New Testament, it is doxa, which means light and brilliance. It's used 165 times in the New Testament, 77 times in Paul. In Exodus 24, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. The overwhelming beauty and majesty of God's being was seen there. The weight of his character, the splendor of his majesty, his fame, if you will, God's fame, his radiance. Can we see it and live? How can we, how can we come to Romans 9 and see that he does all things for his own glory and be exposed to all of these brilliant and wonderful, glorious attributes and live? Could you come into the presence of the living God and yourself live? And the answer to that question is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that the way in which we can actually behold the glory and the splendor of Almighty God is in the face of Jesus Christ, in His person, 
in his work, in his loving incarnation. And do you know the only way you will ever see God with the physical eye is by seeing him in the incarnate Christ. The God of glory became man. Get this. The God of glory that's altogether sovereign God of Romans chapter 9. This God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. This sovereign God, this glorious God, the God of glory became man and hung on a cross. Therefore, sixthly, you've come up onto this little bit of a ledge. Now you stand up and you face the Swiss Alps of God's incomprehensibility. Have you ever seen a great mountain range, great mountain peak? You know, Jay Gressa Machen loved to climb mountains. Ever climb a mountain? You look over this great mountain peak, you see the beauty of it all. It fades into in, inconsequential vision when you contrast it with who God is. So the point here to which I want to lead us as we contemplate these things is that we come to the end of human thought and language. And that's where it will lead Paul as he contemplates these things And at the end of the 11th chapter of the book of Romans, beginning in verse 33. He can contain no longer, and he breaks out into a peon of praise, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Oh, the depths. And if you can be brought to the point in your Christian life where you are controlled by, oh, the depths, oh, the depths. Well, Calvin rightly says, We will care little to know God until we understand ourselves better. How do we understand ourselves better? By contrasting ourselves with the majesty of God. That's how. So every day we should contrast ourselves with the majesty of God and get down in the dust where we belong. And that's how we're raised up. Then we will be stripped of self-righteousness and shut up to any refuge but the grace of the cross alone. So you see, you can come to Romans 9 and you can scale the text, but you can't climb up to God. You can climb the text, you can understand it better, or you can go to the depths and understand it better, however you wish to view it, but you can never climb up to God. God must come down if we are to be saved, and that's what he did. Grace only can make us sinners Love the sovereign God. Let me read something to you. One of my favorite things in all of theology. I'll tell you who it is afterward, though most of you will know. From my childhood, 
From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom He would to eternal life and rejecting whom He pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God and His justice, and thus eternally disposing of men according to His sovereign pleasure, but never could give an account of how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at that time, nor after, nor a long time after, that there was an extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it, but only that now I saw further, and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it, However, my mind rested in it, and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense, in God showing mercy to whom He will show mercy and hardening whom He will." God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as of anything that I see with my eyes, at least it is so at times. But I have often since that first conviction had quite another kind of sense of God's sovereignty than I had then. I have often since had not only a conviction but a delightful conviction The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. And most of you know that I'm quoting Jonathan Edwards. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.